Morning, Fair Hill Church. All right, so I know I preached last week, but I'm going to be gone away for a little bit with the baby, so you're stuck with me another day. All right, so uh, we are continuing in the book of Mark, looking at uh, this king who is presenting himself to us. Uh, we get to see who he is and what he's doing, and uh, today we're seeing uh, one of the more, kind of one of the famous stories. They're all famous, really. Uh, People know about Jesus. Uh, this is uh, Jesus being questioned regarding his fasting. That he's, uh, a group comes to him and is asking why he doesn't fast and why other groups and other disciples, uh, they do fast. And uh, now, we love the gospel. And we want to hear the gospel week after week. We want to hear it in everything. Uh, but... Just because the gospel's true doesn't mean it's, it's contained in the same way in every single passage. And so uh, today we're looking at this, uh, this story, and there tends to be a, a traditional way of interpreting this uh, that I think is wrong. And there's, I think there's a, a helpful way that has a kind of richer applications and is true to the text. And so uh, we're going to wrestle with that a little bit today with the hope that... Um, we might respond to the presence of Jesus. And we live relative to so many different things that our, our joys and our hopes and our sorrows are tied to so many things. In this passage, it's, it's telling us that ultimately, our joys and our sorrows should be linked to Jesus Christ and to his presence and to his work That we live relative to Jesus. We live our whole lives oriented around who Jesus is in our presence, and our standing in his presence. And that's where we, uh, that's how we live our lives, is relative to Jesus Christ and his presence. And so with that in mind, we're going to look at uh, this passage. We're going to look at kind of the, the typical interpretation, the good and the bad. Uh, and then we're going to look at some of Jesus' parables, the bridegroom parable and the parable of the patch and the new wine, ultimately seeing what it looks like to to live in the presence of Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and read Mark 2, verses 18 through 22. Question about fasting. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came to him and said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom was taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ has come. And we know in our, many of us know in our minds what that means, that it means that the king has come, it means the groom has come, the savior has come. But, Father, we ask that it might um, work its way to our hearts, that it might express itself in our actions and our emotions and our thoughts. 
and ultimately in our great joy of being in the presence of Jesus and, and great sorrow that we are not yet standing in your presence. And Father, would, we, would you help us to wrestle through that reality and to live relative to you, not relative to the other things? Father, would you be with, with us now? Uh, would you fill us with your spirit that we may understand your word? And would you do the things that we cannot? We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. All right, so uh, the story begins with a question, and oftentimes that we, we've looked at the Pharisees, we've looked at the scribes, and Jesus' confrontation with these groups. And so uh, we can get kind of on the defensive when we see any mention of the Pharisees and we want to go on attack. And we're thinking, okay, now Jesus is going is to be attacking the Pharisees again. This is another confrontation. But uh, recognize here, this isn't, this isn't the Pharisees coming to him. This isn't a, a confrontation with his enemies. It's just an interaction between confused followers and Jesus Christ, who are trying to figure out what Jesus is really about and trying to figure out how, how is Jesus different, how is he the same as these other groups, these other leaders? What's different about Jesus Christ? And so... Uh, because we like to focus on the Pharisees and we want to get to the gospel, uh, a common interpretation of this passage is to say, all right, so uh, the whole point of this is that the Pharisees are legalists. They're trying to justify themselves and they're trying to prove how good they are by works. And of all the works, they have decided that fasting should be one of the ones that they're going to focus on. And those Pharisees, they're just miserable. They're miserable, and they don't like to have a good time. And so what do they do? They, they pick the worst commandment, fasting, and they embrace that one. And of course they would because they don't understand grace. They don't understand grace. They don't understand the joy of the gospel. And so uh, here comes Jesus. And here comes Jesus, and he is full of grace and love and fun. And so Jesus, what does he say? You know, let's feast. Let's have a great time. And that Old Testament, all those laws and stuff, they were all wrong. And they were all legalism, and they were all just trying to earn righteousness. But here comes Jesus giving righteousness by faith, and now we can just party it up. <laughs> that's a good message. All right. I, I get why that's the traditional interpretation. That's a lot of fun. All right. I know, I'm here to squelch the fun. Sorry, guys. I know, I, I, and the party tonight is canceled. I know. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. Um, all right, so uh, what does that mean then? The, the interpretation of this passage then becomes, well, okay, uh, fasting. Fasting is an old way of life. It's an old legalistic system. We don't do that anymore. What do we do? We feast and we celebrate, and we have nothing but joy because Jesus Christ is so much better than the law. All right. I'm not saying that's holistically wrong. All right? We, we, we are not legalistic. We don't want to be justified by, by fasting. But if Jesus Christ is Lord and he is king and we want to actually follow the king, we have to actually listen to him. 
And we have to be careful to listen. And we shouldn't just say, well, everything must be the gospel. He must not have anything else to say. Uh, no, he might have things to say relative to the gospel. And in the midst of these things. And as much as I want to talk about legalism and grace, uh, that's not the main point of this passage. That's not the main point of this passage. And I'm hopefully going to show us uh, some reasons why that, that isn't the case. All right, first, first, uh, this interpretation, uh, it condemns fasting holistically. It just throws it all out and says, you know, don't, don't fast. Fasting is just this old way of life. It's this old, dead thing. But what does this passage say? Jesus, in Christ, Jesus Christ himself says that when I leave, you will in fact fast. That it's about the timing. It's not about this system of law versus a system of grace. He's saying, you know what? Now is not the time to fast, but there will come a time to fast. And so we don't get to just say, you know what? All that stuff was just, we just get to throw it aside. All right, likewise, uh, once again, reminder, this is not just a, a, a disagreement between the, the Pharisees. John the Baptist and his disciples are here too. And if we're going to totally condemn the Pharisees for their fasting, we have to condemn John the Baptist and his disciples for fasting too. And Jesus doesn't do that. That Jesus, yes, he condemns the Pharisees. He says, you know, you've totally missed the boat. You've missed the Messiah. But John the Baptist, he was the, he was the front runner. He was the one introducing Jesus. He was the one preparing the people for Jesus' coming. And when he was a proponent of fasting, we can't say that he was just being legalistic and lacking grace. We have to understand that this is a, this is a little more nuanced than that. And so I think that what ultimately this is about is not legalism and grace. This is living relative to who Jesus Christ is and his presence. It's having our joys and our lives kind of linked to his presence. That's what this parable, all these parables are about. That's what this passage is about. And I think this is helpful because our joys really do go up and down. Our joys are linked to things. And they should ultimately be linked to Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus Christ is saying. And will you respond to my presence or not? Will you live your life relative to Jesus or not? All right, to help us with that, we have three parables. And the first is the parable of the bridegroom. All right, let's, let's break down this analogy. Uh, so, think about a wedding. You've all been to weddings, most of you. Some of the little ones, maybe not. Uh, but, all right, the wedding starts with the ceremony. And what do you do? You sit there bored until who shows up? The wedding party. And so then, then the wedding starts. And, and what do you do? You stare at the bride, you stare, you look at the people, and you're kind of riding their emotions, you're getting excited with them. Uh, maybe you start to cry when they cry, and you're linked to all of this, and when he says you may kiss the bride, everyone cheers, and then the announcement. All right, it's all about the bride and the bridegroom. 
and emotions surge and, and are riding along with them. And then, as everyone's cheering and, and, and they, they walk down the aisle, and then they're gone. And what typically happens in our culture is, where do they go? No, they go take photos. <laughs> yes, you all know that. They all go take photos. And so they're off. They're off like wandering through a, a field of lilies and like taking the, the, like, the pictures of like, let's take our shoes next to each other and like holding the veil and like kissing behind the veil. All, all that stuff. All right. That's what they're doing for like a, an hour and a half. And what do all the guests do? They get to sit around and wait. All right, has the party started? No, they kind of pretend that it has. All right, so you get to eat like some cheese and crackers and make awkward small talk, and it's kind of boring. But what is everyone doing? They're just waiting for the party to start. It's all relative to the couple. And that's where this hype man comes. Finally, the MC comes and like starts playing the, the cheesy hip hop and like, we're ready for the wedding party. And, and they, they awkwardly dance in, and we pretend to get excited. But we don't actually know them. All right, and then, <laughs> then the bride and the groom come, and we actually are excited because we do know them. They're the only ones we know. And what happens then? Then the party starts. And usually the first thing that happens is food. <laughs> you get to eat the food now. Before, you were just looking at the cake, you were looking at the buffet, but all you got was the cheese platter. But when they come, the party starts. All right. That is the analogy that Jesus is using here. That is the analogy. And he's saying that he is the bridegroom. And that ultimately, if you're looking at all of life, all of life is waiting for the wedding to start. And it's not about the rules or the not rules. It's about whether or not the groom is there. And if he's there, the party should be happening. If he's not there, you shouldn't be feasting. And before the bridegroom is there, right, you're eating cheese cubes. Then you have the party while he's there. And then what happens after when he leaves? The party stops. The party dies down, all the food has been eaten, and you go back to maybe some cheese. All right. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what Jesus is trying to prove, and that's the point he's trying to make. That he is the one that, that, the, that the whole world should be excited about. And when we stand in his presence, we should be rejoicing that this one who we love and delight in, and who is the Lord and the Savior, and the King is present with us. Now, let's talk John the Baptist. What was John the Baptist? John the Baptist was the MC. All right, he was the one saying, uh, all right, please help yourself to some crackers. We'll get the party started when the bride and groom come. Please don't eat the cake, sir. Please stay away from the buffet. It's not time yet. All right. Now, they don't keep fasting forever. Eventually, as they kind of learn to, to migrate from John the Baptist to Jesus, they find out that it's not about John the Baptist anymore. He says, I must decrease, he must increase. There's this movement away from John the Baptist and preparing 
to actually being with Jesus Christ. Now, John the Baptist and his disciples, they're fasting because they haven't quite figured it out yet. They're a little late to the show. They, haven't, they didn't hear the announcement right away, but they, they do hear it, and they, they join the party. Now, the Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees in this, uh, this analogy? They're the wedding crashers. All right, they show up, and they're eating cheese and crackers, and the bridegroom comes in, and they don't know him. They don't know him, they don't recognize him, and they don't start to party because they missed the whole boat. And they're still looking at their watches, waiting for him to come when everyone else is having a party. And the thing that Jesus is trying to say is that if you can be like a Pharisee and you can miss this whole show, and you can live your whole life eating cheese and crackers and never actually join the feast. You can never respond to Jesus, either his going or his, leave, his coming or his, his leaving. All right. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's where we have to ask ourselves, does our joy, does our joy ride that wave? When we stand in the presence of Jesus, when we're in those situations that, that pull us towards Jesus, is that the time that we, we rejoice and we feast? When we come here, and right, in the body of Christ, in the presence of God in a special way, is this your time of feasting and of joy? When we take communion, is that the, the heights of, of feasting and joy? When you're reading the word and fellowshipping with him, when you're in prayer, are those the great joys of your life? Are those the, the feasts? And likewise, when you're away from his presence, when you're, maybe when you're alienated from the community, or when you're distracted and missing Jesus, when you are in sin and feel like you're, you're removed from him, you're, you're rebelling against him, are those the times of fasting and of sorrow and of mourning, longing to be with Jesus? I think, so, so much more that the case is that we ride other joys. And we feast when times are good, when there are blessings, when we are doing well in our jobs, when we feel like we're relationally stable, when we feel like things are going well, then we feast. And when we, we feel cursed and suffering and things aren't going our way, that's when we fast and we're sorrowful. But it's not relative to Jesus, it's relative to, to the world or to our idols or to our other joys. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what this, this story is about. And it's convicting. And we long for our joys to be linked to Jesus and not to other things. And to help us with that, to help us with that, uh, we get two more parables. We get two more parables that are linked together. They're pretty much the same parable told two different ways. And it's asking, okay, if you're going to respond to Jesus, what kind of life do you need to have? What kind of person is able to respond to Jesus? What, what are you going to have to be? 
And it starts with the parable of the patch. The parable of the patch. All right. Uh, most of you just throw away your clothes if you get a hole in it. Uh, so we need to talk about patches and the seamstress uh, working behind it. All right. I feel stupid explaining this, but fabric shrinks. Fabric shrinks when you wash it. And so uh, if you have an old garment and it has a hole in it and you've washed it, it's not getting any bigger or smaller. It's not changing at all. It is the garment it's going to be. And if you think, you know, I'm going to take this shiny new fabric and slap it on there, and look, it perfectly fits the hole. The problem is the outside is rigid, it's unchanging, but this patch, it still has to shrink. And eventually, that patch shrinks, and what does it do? It tears its way. It gets a little smaller and tears its way through and rips that hole apart, and that hole is now bigger, and the patch is falling off. All right. What does that mean? What does that mean? All right, too often what we think that means is, oh, uh, that, old, that old stuff is the law and that old way of life, living by, living by the law and legalism. And you can't combine grace and legalism. All right, we already are trying to prove that's not what we're talking about. I want to contend that that, that old garment, that's an old, rigid, inflexible way of life that refuses to respond to Jesus. And then when it sees Jesus, yeah, you can slap Jesus onto that life, but it doesn't really want him there. It doesn't need him there. It's, it's already chosen its, its whole trajectory. And that life already has its own joys. It already has its own purposes. It already has its own direction. And when Jesus comes to, to fix that life and shake it up, he ends up just ripping it to shreds. Because you're not looking for a new garment. You're not looking to be different. All you're looking for is maybe a little patch, maybe a little bit of grace, maybe a little bit of law, maybe a little bit of safety net for the life that you have already chosen. But ultimately, you don't want to respond to Jesus. Maybe Jesus can respond to you. And the reality is, if Jesus is king, and if Jesus is Lord, and if Jesus is the whole purpose of all of life, you don't just get to slap him on an old life and think that you can go on your merry way. He ends up ripping that old life apart. And that's what happens with the Pharisees. What do they have? Their old life, the problem that legalism comes in is their old life doesn't need Jesus and doesn't only care about Jesus. They already have their way of righteousness. It's legalism. And they already have all of their understandings about God figured out. And they know that God can't do certain things, that he's about certain things, and Jesus comes, and they do not adapt to Jesus, and he ultimately, he, he's slapped on there, and he rips himself off. And for meeting Jesus, they are more torn up and broken. That patch doesn't stick. That's what this parable is about. Now, that takes us to the second parable. 
pretty much the same, actually. All right, so uh, ancient winemaking. All right, you guys are learning about really weird things. Uh, but it's very specific because it has to include this rigidity that isn't flexible. And this time we're talking about animal skins. All right, so super gross. Uh, what do you, how do you make wine? You, uh, you skin an animal and you piece it together until it's like this big sack. And then you pour the grape juice in there. That's what new wine is. It's grape juice. It's, it's non-fermented. And so it's put in this stretchy new animal skin sack. Delicious. And it's left to ferment. And as it ferments, it, it puffs out this animal skin. And the animal skin becomes rigid. And it's holding on to this wine. And the system is now contained. That's how it works. Now, that can only be done once. The animal skin is only flexible enough to do it once. And if you try to then pour in new wine again, it's not going to puff up and stretch. It's going to explode. And it's going to tear the whole thing apart. You're not going to get good wine. You're not going to even get a wine skin. You're going to ruin the whole thing. Once again, this rigidity and this refusal to acquiesce, to adjust, to flex around Jesus Christ. It's the exact same analogy. Now, what's the application then? The application is not, do I need to make sure that I don't fast legalistically? No, it means when Jesus comes into your life, are you going to respond to him? Are you going to be flexible enough that as Jesus stretches your life and, and forces you to recognize that he is king and he is savior, is he going to destroy your life or are you going to respond to him with a whole new life that can accommodate Jesus Christ? Now, uh, an illustration of this, um, when I was in uh, campus ministry in, in college, uh, there was a senior when I was a, a sophomore, and he had watched year after year uh, good Christian kids, nice kids who grew up in the church and who professed Jesus, and yet... We all went to a, a prestigious school, and we had paths set for us. And we wanted to get good grades, and we wanted to get good jobs that lead to good lives. And we had this set path, and yet we had Jesus too. And what he, was, he saw year after year was that these kids, they had slapped Jesus on their lives. And, and started to grow in Jesus and, and said that they loved Jesus. But the whole trajectory never changed. Their, their joys never changed. Their glories never changed. Their worship didn't fundamentally change their lives at all. And what he started, he started calling us out for it. He started calling me out for it. He was essentially saying, did you, did you bring Jesus into your life just so you could go on your merry way as if he didn't. Uh, and I would be on my merry way if it weren't for him saying that. Uh, and 
because of my sin, I'm still on my merry way. I'm still about the, the, some of the same joys and glories and worship. If it weren't for him, I think it would be, it'd be very different. But I think if I understood this passage then, it's the same exact message. Now, I don't know how your life should change. I don't know what Jesus is calling you to, to flex and to adapt to. But we have to ask ourselves, are we living relative to Jesus Christ? Are our joys attached to his presence? Do we long for him? Do we, do we weep and do we fast knowing that we are not with him? And do we delight in the opportunities that we have to, to be with him in his presence? That's what we're asking. Now, that can be very legalistic if that's where we left it. And that's where I think that uh, this passage actually goes to a pretty beautiful place that there's hints of who Jesus is in these, in these parables. And there's ways that we, have, we can think about Jesus that help us to respond the right way. All right, first, first. How is Jesus the, the patch, the patch in our ragged clothing? All right, Jesus, he kind of undersells himself in these parables. He undersells himself, and he says, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm a patch that goes over this, these clothings, that, and if, if you have to have new clothes, and then if, if you put on new clothes, then I'll, I'll be a good patch that stays on. When in reality, what does Jesus ultimately end up doing he clothes us with his, with his own righteousness. And he says that of all our lives, all we have created for ourselves by any of our works are useless rags that try to cover over shame and nakedness and guilt. And he says, you know, as long as, as long as those are, those are the clothes that you're still wearing, those old self-righteous clothes, that old way of life, that old way of trying to prove yourself, I'm going to rip those clothing off. That's not going to work. And he says, instead of those clothes, what am I going to give you? I'm going to give you new wedding garments. I'm going to give you the perfect attire, my own righteousness. Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We've been talking about the bridegroom coming, and we need new clothes. And Jesus comes, and he gives us the perfectly white garment as he takes the, the rags and the blood-stained garments for himself. And then we see this call to, to receive the new wine. That Jesus is this new wine, and if we are flexible enough to receive it. When Jesus, he, he talks in other places of providing the wine for the wedding feast. His first miracle is to provide wine for the wedding feast of Cana. Now, all of that is, is supposed to be pushing forward and saying, you know what? 
there is going to be a wedding feast, and it's going to be flowing with wine. And the only way you can participate in that wedding feast is if you have drank my blood shed for you to wash you clean, if you have filled yourself with the grace that flows from my blood from the cross. That is the wine that you must drink. And if you have refused to drink that wine, if you don't think you need it, then there's no place for you. But if you have been washed, if you have partaken of that, if you have received the Holy Spirit, then you are this, this new vessel. A new vessel prepared for that day. And then finally, Jesus says, you know what? I am the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom. But we aren't just guests at the party. That was underselling this whole thing. What does he say? He says, you are the bride. You are the bride, the unworthy, adulterous bride, but I've chosen you and I have, out of all, selected you to be my beloved, to be the one I rejoice in, to be the one I delight in. We are engaged to Jesus Christ and he's coming for his bride and we will delight in him for all eternity. And Jesus says, you know what? Link your joy to my presence. How could we not link our joy to the presence of of him who washes us clean, who gives us his own blood to sanctify us, who chose us not because of our righteousness, but because of our great sin, because he would do something about it. We repent of our own hard-heartedness, of our own failure to, to rejoice in the presence of Jesus and weep that we are not with him yet. Now, one last point. All right, you probably want to know whether I think you should fast or not. <laughs> I know that's, that's ultimately, is he going to make us fast? Uh, I know, yes. <laughs> and not intermittent fasting, that doesn't count. All right, if you're doing it for diet reasons, it's different. Um, all right, the question is, are we in pres- the presence of Jesus or not? Yes and no. Yes and no, actually. It's both. It's both. And that's where we can stress one and, and refuse the other, and we end up not really understanding the Christian life. All right, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is present in special ways. He's present by his Spirit. He's present in special ways, like communion and the body. He is with us. And in that, to the extent that he is with us, we rejoice. And we feast. And we delight that he's with us. But he's also very much not with us. We are not at the wedding feast of the Lamb. We are not seeing him face to face. We do not see him without the veil of sin and shame and guilt. We are not completely purified yet. And we don't stand in his presence as we will stand in his presence. And that's where there's a very real sense in which if you are attaching your joy to Jesus, there's an element of the Christian life where you are fasting. 
You are fasting because you're away from your first love. And you're away from the one you delight in. And you long to be with your husband and you are not there yet. The wedding hasn't happened. You are merely engaged. And that's where I don't want to oversell this life. Should we have a great joy? Yes. We should also have a great sorrow. And we're constantly fighting these things and we're both fasting and not fasting. We're feasting and not feasting because our lives are tied to Jesus Christ. Now, in one sense, that's a great sorrow, but that's, that's our great hope. That this is not all that it is, that there are far greater things to come. We will enjoy Jesus far more deeply and richly and for eternity in a way that we have not known. And may that be our ultimate joy. Amen? Amen. Amen. Any questions? Maybe you're just too scared to stick to in masks, but yeah, candy, all right. Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. I, I, I recognize that. That was like unclear. Uh, we are justified. We're not totally sanctified. And so uh, there's a real sense in which there's sin that clouds our, our view of Jesus and that uh, we'll able, be able to fellowship with him in a different way when we're totally glorified and totally clean. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, forensically, not... not in practice yet, right? So that is, uh, we are totally justified. We're not totally sanctified. That's, that's the only distinction I'm making. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah. Sorry? Are the skins tanned first? <laughs> I would assume they're tanned. I know, I don't think there's like blood and guts in them. Yeah. I did not expect that question. Well done. Well done. <laughs> All right. Before we get into more uh, viticultural uh, questions, I'm going to pray. Let's go. Uh, Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we have such a great Savior. We have a, a bridegroom who has washed us clean. And Father, we long for the day when all of those things are fully realized. And we ask that we would not uh, tie our joys and our hopes to anything but Jesus and what he's done. Father, would you fill us with your spirit that you may give us hearts that long for Jesus and delight at the taste that we do receive. Father, would we, you make us a, a peculiar people who are both rejoicing and, and sorrowful. And Father, would our, uh, our expectation and our hope and our our love for Jesus uh, be evident to all. We thank you that we will stand uh, enjoying Jesus for all eternity. Would you give us the, the faith that we need to, to make it there, we pray in Jesus Christ's name.